Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McLenahan, and this is a special episode of the podcast, which is split into two parts. Very shortly, I'll discuss the outcome of the local elections held in England, Scotland and Wales with Baswood's public and political affairs lead, Kerry Prince. And after that, I'll explore what the future holds for social work following last week's Northern Ireland Assembly election. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and thanks so much for being part of our community of listeners. Kerry, welcome. How are you doing? Welcome back to Let's Talk Social Work. Thank you. It's great to be back. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. I am recording in my little boy's bedroom, forgetting that I don't work in a podcast studio, uh, but in a semi-detached house. My wife had arranged a play date for one of the kids and I had to decamp upstairs. So yeah, I'm in a different environs than normal, but actually good acoustics, lots and lots of soft toys. It's, it, it's helpful. That mightn't matter to you, Kerry, but it's important to me. Like, like a little audience watching you. No, no, no. Just in terms of um, acoustic insulation. Oh, I see, just sound, I see. Sound deadening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, anyway, the important stuff aside, um, thanks for being here. It's Monday the 9th of May. By yesterday, the results had been called for all 200 councils that were up for election in England, Scotland and Wales. Now, there's a bit of a mix in terms of the outcome. Labour gained 11 councils, I think. They lost six, so net gain of five. The Liberal Democrats now control a further three councils, and Plaid Cymru in Wales and the SNP in Scotland also made gains. Can you tell me, uh, just to start us off, what your big takeaway message is from these elections? Um, I'm not entirely convinced there is one takeaway message. Um, all, especially Conservatives and Labour, set, tried to set expectations before these elections. Um, the Conservatives briefed that they were going to lose hundreds and hundreds of seats. Uh, Labour briefed that they wouldn't do as well as they thought. And um, and so and both did better than expected. So there's not really much of a takeaway. I guess the public is still massively undecided about what they think of Keir, whether Boris is the lesser of two evils, um, and which is probably why the Lib Dems did so well. The Lib Dems are often viewed as a party of protest um, and they did very well on, on Thursday. Do you have figures for the Lib Dems? Do you know exactly how they did? Yes, yeah, so the Lib Dems gained 223 council seats, more than any other party. Um, so they did very well. So more, more than Labour, is that right? Yeah. They gained, they gained more than Labour. Overall, Labour still has the most um, that were up for election. They held a lot of the seats they already had. Um, but the Dems gained the most. Okay. Now, the Prime Minister, he's referred to the Conservative Party's loss of, I think it was 487 seats and 12 councils. Now, he's balanced that in inverted commas by the gain of one council and the win of Croydon's mayoral race. And he's he's referring to that as, as a mixed outcome. I don't know if I buy that. Any thoughts on that? This is this is classic um, communications from political parties trying to make it sound as if that it wasn't that bad for them. Um, so, yes, Boris may look at um, losing um, Wandsworth and Barnet, but gaining the Croydon mayor and and seeing how badly also Labour did around places like Tower Hamlets. Um, but what, funnily enough, Boris didn't mention is how bad 
the Conservatives did in his own home borough of Hillingdon. And before we get into that, um, Tower Hamlets, what was the outcome there? Tower Hamlets would traditionally be quite a deprived socioeconomic area, would that be right? Absolutely. And so Tower Hamlets saw the return of former Mayor uh, Lufter Rahman, and who was um, disgraced a few years back for like uh, ele- bad election practices. And so he was banned from standing for office for five years and the ban now came to an end and he stood for mayor and he won and his Inspire party um, have uh, gained the council. Okay, okay. Now you also mentioned, I think you mentioned Wandsworth. Wandsworth and Westminster um, are two councils in London that have, the media have been given an awful lot of coverage to. Um, they would have been former Conservative bastions. How significant were those wins? They are significant um, because, especially Wandsworth, I think it's the first time Labour have ever never had it um, but there is a demographic change in London um, and and that tends to favour the Labour Party and Labour continuously seem to be doing better and better in cities um, so this won't be a surprise and um, the Labour Party has been trying to get Wandsworth for a while now they've been campaigning very hard um, so it probably isn't had that much of a surprise if you're paying close attention to the Wandsworth race. Okay pay more attention Andy keep up um, <laughs> I'll take that now, Kerry, there are two angles I want to look at here. Firstly, what can we read into the results in terms of what they might mean for the next general election? And secondly, why do they in and of themselves matter in terms of local authority service delivery? So first, if we look at what the local election results might potentially tell us about a general election outcome, what are you thinking? Well, so local elections are a good indicator of what could happen at the next general election. A party that does um, that gets a lot of gains may be preparing to win a general election. But this result was a bit boring, if I'm honest. Um, the Lib Dems did very well. Um, whether that translates into parliamentary seats, is it, that, that, that can often depend on the local area. Um, but um, Labour did well. They made some gains in the red wall seats that they need to win back, but certainly not the level that they, that they need to win a parliamentary majority. And, and the Conservatives lost seats. Um, it's not a surprise that they're quite unpopular at the moment. Um, and people might be looking somewhere else to vote. Some Labour inroads in Scotland, but there's always that argument that, you know, for Labour to form a government at Westminster, they would need to make significant gains in Scotland in a general election. And the Scottish Nationalist Party seems to go from strength to strength, um, continually making gains. They've had a fantastic election result in Scotland. Yes, yes. The the SNP are staying very strong in Scotland. And you're absolutely right. Um, Labour need to be performing better there if they've got any chance of, of forming a majority in Westminster. Now, Kerry, if we move on and look at the powers of local councils, you know, what do the changes um, in terms of governance, in terms of who controls councils um, across GB, what do these changes represent? So the political party that runs a council can more pragmatically, I suppose, implement their values. They can implement their their politics rather than rather than their policy. Um, so a Labour-run council, they have different priorities on what they're going to spend their very small budget on. Um, compared to a Conservative council. So, but the problem is local authorities don't have much funding right now. So a Labour authority come in and um, and they could want to overhaul social care or eliminate poverty in the area um, or tackle ha- the housing crisis, but they, they can't do that alone. Um, they require funding, which comes from, much of which comes from central government and local authority budgets continue to be cut to the bone. Thanks, Kerry. Now, 
I think it's important to acknowledge that Basra is not aligned to any political party, but many would argue that the value and ethics of social work, support for social justice being one clear example, align more closely with the policies of some of the parties currently in opposition at Westminster, more so than they do with the government's own policies. Like you said, there's only so much you can do at a local level when you don't have the funding you need. I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is how much, how much can local authorities deliver uh, under the current circumstances? It, it's very challenging and it's more of a case of moving one small pile of money to, to another project. Um, the radical overhaul change that we need to see cannot happen without a Westminster that's in favour of it. Um, we cannot, for example, the changes in the health and care bill about, for example, like discharge to assess, um, like that's going to really damage um, the the social care offer by local authorities. Local authorities can't change that themselves. The powers come from Westminster. And so I think local authorities are stuck. You could have the best well-intentioned council, but they can't do anything if they don't have the resources, or they don't have the permission from central government. And when is the next general election intended to be? Whenever Boris Johnson wants it to be. They, re- they repealed the Fixed Term Parliament Act, so it can be whenever he wants, as long as it's before May 2024. And if you were in charge, it's hard to imagine you as a Conservative Prime Minister, Kerry, not necessarily hard to imagine you as Prime Minister, but imagining you as a Conservative Prime Minister is a bit of a stretch. But if you were in that position, would the results from the local elections incline you to hold off on calling a general election or would you be more inclined to do one sooner? You know, it isn't really what we're here to talk about, but um, I think the ongoing saga with Keir Starmer being accused of breaking lockdown rules will determine that. Um, They're trying to make him very unpopular um, and so then they can call a general election at a time where he's deeply unpopular. Um, I would predict sooner rather than later, um, but it it does depend on how they can taint Keir, who is currently viewed as, you know, he's got integrity, he might might be boring, um, but you can trust him. And so they're trying to drag him down to to Boris Johnson's level and that will be when we'll see an election is called. Thanks Kerry. Now I'm sure you'll be back on before the next general election but if not we'll see you I'm sure in the (laughs) aftermath of that. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks Andy. Bye. In this section of the podcast, we'll be looking at what the outcome of last week's Northern Ireland Assembly election means for governance in Northern Ireland and how the current situation will impact social work and the life opportunities for the individuals who use social work services in the region. For this conversation, I'm joined by Ulster University academic and anti-poverty campaigner Dr Keir Fitzpatrick. Former social worker and former Minister for Justice, David Ford, and National Director of Basel Northern Ireland and current social worker, Carolyn Ewart. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, everybody. Kira, first, how are you doing, Kira? Are you well? I'm doing well. Thanks very much for having me, Andy. Thanks for being here. David, how are you? I'm slowly descending from cloud nine after the election results last week. What does that put you? Cloud seven? Cloud six? Oh, probably about four and a half. Minutes. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> And Carolyn, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Andy. Good to be here. Thank you. Nice to have Carolyn back. Carolyn was with us recently uh, talking to the Children's Commissioner from Northern Ireland uh, in a really interesting episode. I would try to remember when that was to point listeners back to, but I can't quite remember. Dig back through the archive. It was a good episode. Now, this is Tuesday the 10th of May. We're going to be talking about the Northern Ireland Assembly election. That was held on Thursday last week, the 5th of May. As things stand, Northern Ireland has an assembly, but it doesn't yet have devolved government. That's because a Northern Ireland executive has not yet been formed. 
The electoral system for the Northern Ireland Assembly is unlike the process for electing the Westminster Parliament, and it also differs from the systems used to elect the Welsh Senate and the Scottish Parliament. David, um, could you kick us off, please, by briefly, and now briefly, explaining how the Northern Ireland Assembly is elected and how the Northern Ireland Executive is formed? Yes. First, first the exact, sorry, first the Assembly election. How does that work? Well, every election in Northern Ireland, except the Westminster election, takes place using what's termed the single transferable vote, which, of course, those who voted in the Scottish local elections last week will also know. Each Westminster constituency returns five members of the Legislative Assembly, thereafter MLAs, and each voter has one vote, which they use by ranking the candidates in their constituency in order of their choice. Uh, bluntly speaking, if somebody has more votes than they need, a proportion of their votes are passed on to the next available choice. If they have so few votes that they're not going to get in, their vote is passed on to the next available choice until you eventually end up with six candidates, five of whom should be at or near what's described as the quota. In this case, one vote more than one-sixth of the total votes cast and the sixth one who is the runner-up, and those five are the elected MLAs. Thank you, David. That was very comprehensive and very succinct. We have an expression in Northern... I could give you a very long expression as to how they counted, but you I know you that. could, and I've spent quite a lot of time explaining to Hunt, uh, to colleagues, and we're going to probably get onto that in a wee second, but I was just going to mention there's a phrase which gets used in this part of the world quite frequently, which is vote till you book, uh, which <laughs> listeners of Dairy Girls may understand the word book. I'm not going to explain it. It's um, not pleasant, but it's about, yes, ranking the preference of your candidates. Um, David, once we have an assembly elected, which we do, we have 90 members now who are elected to the Northern Ireland Assembly. How is a Northern Ireland executive formed? Well, what should then happen is when the assembly meets on Friday, it will first of all elect a speaker, or is due to elect the speaker. All the things have to be conditionally expressed today. And then the largest party represented in the assembly is entitled to nominate the first minister. And what is described as the largest party of a larger, different designation, which is where we get into complicated Northern Ireland politics, is entitled to nominate the deputy first minister. The designations, as they're written in the Good Friday Agreement, are unionist, which broadly encompasses democratic unionist and Ulster unionist and one or two other MLAs, nationalists, which is Sinn Féin, the largest party, and the SDLP, and others is the term which is charmingly used to refer to those who choose not to describe themselves as either unionists or nationalists. In this case, there'll be 17 Alliance Party MLAs who will designate themselves as United Community, and one from People Before Profit who will designate himself as Socialist, and they will all be described as others in the Assembly rules. So. Sinn Féin is the largest party get to nominate the first minister. As there are then more unionists than others, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, the larger union, the largest unionist party, is entitled to nominate deputy first minister. At this stage, Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the Democratic Unionists, has said that he will not be nominating anybody as deputy first minister because of unionist concerns about the Northern Ireland Protocol, that bit of the Brexit withdrawal deal. Uh, which governs the relationships between Northern Ireland, GB and the EU. Thank you, David. And we could talk for 45 minutes, no doubt, about the protocol, about the ins and outs of it, the whys and the wherefores. But I don't want to take up the whole discussion. Uh, we're going to talk about social work. Uh, and But I'm keen to know your views concerning the time frame for an executive being formed. Um, given the issue around the protocol, the Queen's speech was today. 
I don't think the protocol was mentioned. Is, I'm right there, isn't it? Um, are you willing to make a prediction about the time frame for an executive being formed or if, in fact, an executive will be formed? Well, the DUP have a point of principle, as they regard it, that they said they would not go into the executive until the protocol was reformed or removed. Uh, every other party seems to be saying uh, that they have a duty to govern to deal with the huge issues that we face around poverty, around problems in health and social care, around climate change, around any number of things you might mention. And it's fundamentally, for most people, unacceptable that the DUP should block the formation of an executive because there are so many things which can only be dealt with by ministers working collectively in the executive. I think what we're probably going to see is at some point over the 24 weeks which is allowed for the formation of an executive, Boris Johnson will provide some kind of fig leaf which the DUP will claim as victory, which will enable them to go back into the assembly have the meeting which in which they nominate the deputy first minister and an executive is formed. And we're in a sort of limbo at the moment because we have an assembly. We don't have an executive, but we do have caretaker ministers. Isn't that correct? Ministers who were in post in the last executive, they stay on for, is it the 24-week period? They can stay on for the 24-week period. In a caretaker position, they can take no new initiatives, but they can continue on existing policies. And of course, we have a complication in that one of the ministers lost her seat and her party has declined to nominate the replacement. So that replacement will have to come from a different party. Yes, and they're, they're claiming they have no mandate to nominate. Now, I suppose there's maybe some politics yes, in that as well. Because under the current numbers, they yes. don't have a mandate to nominate. Yes, yes. Now, Carolyn will shortly come on to discuss the key issues facing the social work profession. But I want to first consider the wider picture. We're currently in the midst of a cost of living crisis. Households are facing spiralling utility bills. The cost of food, petrol and diesel are going through the roof. Last week, the Bank of England forecast inflation would rise above 10% this year. Kira, you have been vociferous in campaigning ahead of the election for parties to take heed of the pressures facing households across Northern Ireland. I saw you on Twitter again today doing the same. Now, can you tell me what, the, what you think the priorities of a new Northern Ireland executive ought to be? Well, really just following on from what David said, I can't really put into words how worried I am for people. Um, particularly those people who don't have a voice and don't have the power of participation. And, you know, they can't actually get across to the mainstream media and often to political elites just how difficult times are for them in terms of being able to afford the very basics. Um, And that's food, that's heat, that's electricity. Uh, Just to give you an example Uh, I do have a a single mum friend who lives in North Belfast and, you know, she uh, sent me a text last week just to say how guilty she is feeling as a parent, a single mum, because she can't afford to bath her children. Uh, She has to think about uh, what she can make for them because she simply just can't afford food. She actually couldn't send two of her children to school last week because she didn't want to send them in without a break. Um, And she didn't want to be really embarrassed at them not having or being excluded. And she actually said herself that it's coming to the point where, you know, children's educations are going to be impacted by this spiral that so many are in. And just to back it up with a wee bit of research, uh, the National Institute for Economic and Social uh, Research said that we're looking at 25,000 more destitute houses in Northern Ireland. 
destitution, which means you can't afford the very basics to eat, heat and to maintain a basic standard of hygiene, is going to go up by 67% here. That's what they're forecasting. That's based on the already difficult context here. And it's double the rate of other areas of the UK um, because of where we're at in terms of poverty and the fact that we've been waiting on a anti-poverty strategy for a long, long time since, um, you know, the St Andrews Agreement. Um, and we're no further on in, in, in that respect. So in terms of what needs to be done, I could give you a list as long as, as long as my arm, but my top three things would be to come back to implement the fantastic anti-poverty strategy that um, the expert panel published last year, um, in October of last year, to uh, publish the mitigations review with another wonderful expert panel that has been commissioned to look at that. Um, and we need to look at mitigating uh, some the, like the two-child limit uh, that we currently have, for example, that is crippling so many families in Northern Ireland because we have bigger families here. And I know that Andy and Carolyn, you'll probably touch on that later. Um, and the other thing is, I was part of an expert panel commissioned by Department for Communities to look at discretionary support. Discretionary support is the system of emergency financial support that replaced the social fund um, in Northern Ireland. We made recommendations around um, emergency grants and loans. Um, it was published uh, quite, I hate to be quite cynical about it, but literally on the day that the Assembly was dissolved. Um, and so it's now up to a new minister to run with those recommendations, which will make a huge difference to the cost of living too. So there's three concrete things that will make a really good foundation in terms of tackling um the spiraling the spiraling number of people that we have um entering into that dark dark place of destitution that is very very hard to get out of it's horrific Kira. and i just had the realization the other day you know you and i worked together have campaigned together on anti-poverty initiatives i had a massive blind spot in terms of you know unless you're living this it doesn't make sense you know so for example the issue around heating and I'm a bit ashamed to kind of say this, but, you know, I have a, a quarterly bill for my electricity and my gas. And I was thinking, you know, if someone was really hard up, you know, use the use the utilities, don't pay the bill if that comes to that. But that's not the situation people are in. And I didn't know that because I don't have a prepaid meter in my house, you know, and that's the sort of those are the sort of uh, issues that, you know, you can be so detached from. And I recognize that I am so detached from in terms of understanding the hardships that people are actually up against. And I think that goes to the heart of the problem, to be honest. And when I listen to the DUP, when I listen to Jeffrey Donaldson talking about working families and the cost of living and the difficulties, I'm like, you do not know just how bad things are. And I feel that's why you're able to be quite dismissive of why you know, you're waiting to get a solution on the protocol. But every day that you wait every day longer that you wait is another day of misery for um, somebody who's living in destitution, somebody who's living in deep poverty. And, you know, they're really struggling to see a way out of, of this. And as you know, and I've done research on Andy and Carolyn, it's the impact that poverty has on all other aspects of people's lives. And what I'm particularly worried about at the moment is the mental health implications of poverty um, and the additional pressure that that's putting on the NHS as well. Uh, you know, all of these issues play into one another. And um, 
I'm just so frustrated. Like, I cannot tell you how frustrated I am that, you know, it, we're just sitting in limbo land. Um, it's, it's really, really dangerous. Yeah. And I think social workers see that all the time, Kira. You know, that they're faced with that day and daily as part of practice that, you know, families don't have enough money to heat their house. Uh, pay their bills, um, send their children out to school. I mean, that's a reality for a lot of people. Um, And the mental health impacts, I think it's really interesting how that continues. And it actually continues on a generational basis as well, that families that are in poverty and and are stuck in poverty have no no way out. So it's um, absolutely, you know, incumbent upon all politicians and the DUP, I think, to to get back into the assembly and to get back to work and to get things sorted out for people. Now, just for clarification for listeners outside of Northern Ireland who may not be aware of this, the Northern Ireland Executive is without tax raising powers. It has to manage a budget which is primarily determined by the block grant from Westminster. But the region does have control over setting social security policy. Kira, I want to come back to you um, to talk about changes that have been made by previous Northern Ireland Executive uh, Ministers and what could be done in the coming months to address the pressures on households. So we we are in limbo without an executive at the moment, but looking back to the last mandate, some significant changes did happen. Can you talk me through those? Yes, absolutely, Andy. And of course, um, Baswa, Northern Ireland and yourself were at the forefront because we campaigned very hard together under the Cliff Edge Coalition to seek to have um, a couple of loopholes closed in respect of the benefit cap and the bedroom tax, which means in very simple terms, that people in Northern Ireland won't be impacted now by either the benefit cap or the bedroom tax, and they will be fully mitigated for those people who live in social housing um, and those people who receive benefits for those people that that were previously impacted by the benefit cap. So that is a very, very positive development and will particularly support larger families that were facing into huge cuts in their social security income due to the benefit cap. Um, So it is a good foundation. The mitigation package has been pioneering in many ways um, and has supported so many people and has kept so many people out of destitution. But as we have said in the Cliff Edge Coalition, it's now outdated and we have an, an awful lot more challenges coming around the corner. A big example um, that has been just announced by uh, DWP in Whitehall this week is um, we're going to see a lot more people managed, migrated onto universal credit. Um, A lot of those people will see a reduction in their income. They will be guaranteed some transitional protection, but in a lot of cases, it won't be as much as they were receiving under the legacy system. So we've got a lot of challenges coming around the corner. All of this um, coupled with the rising cost of living, that 10% inflation figure, people are in for a very, very difficult winter indeed. So we do have devolved social security powers here. And that's why in many respects, I was disappointed to see political parties suggesting that we give these one-off payments to families. And, you know, we're looking at the highest being around £230 And to be quite honest, that's going to see somebody out of a sticky situation for about a month, but it's not sustainable and it's not going to see people through the hard months that we have ahead. And that's why we do need um, policies to A, mitigate some of the worst aspects of welfare reform. So we might see a mitigation of the two-child limit, for example. That would be a fantastic social security policy. 
And something else that I have been um, pushing for, and I know I was very pleased to see that Alliance had included in their manifesto, was a child payment um, for families in Northern Ireland um, to get money into people's households on a monthly basis. Um, and that is a, a kind of solution that would be more sustainable in the long term rather than these one-off payments that have been suggested. Is that similar to the Scottish child payments, Kira? Absolutely. It's very similar to the Scottish child payment that hasn't been up and running very long, but for all intents and purposes, seems to be working very well. Um, the Scottish government has already made a commitment to increase that child payment. Um, you know, I, from becoming a parent myself, I've realised how important those early years are for children um, and how important it is that children have, a, you know, a, a stable home, a stable home environment where they have heat, where they can eat, where they have all the equipment and, you know, like simple things like beds and clothes and they have the security of a an environment where they're able to learn and it's just so important. So I think the child payment, which is available to all children under six in Scotland um, at the moment, uh, is, it will ensure that children have a better start and Social workers, as you said, Carolyn, yes, they're definitely on the front line of this. When I was a volunteer with St Vincent de Paul, we had so many referrals from social workers because they're not getting funding um, anymore through their trusts. They're having to look at alternative options to make sure that families have the very basics like beds and furniture and fridges and cookers to be able to make a home life. And they're increasingly having to scramble to find ways to do that. So the child payment would hopefully give families a wee bit more autonomy um, to create that um, healthy environment for family life themselves. So there's a couple of things that I think would be really, really good um, policies and devolved social security decisions that our executive could make when it is up and running. I think what Kira has said is vitally important. I'll take a compliment her reference to the Alliance Party's proposals for uh, payments for children. But the key issue seems to be that we need to ensure that we're actually targeting the relatively limited sums we have available, because anything we put, anything extra we put into social security budget comes from some other where, other place, and there are budgets elsewhere which are under pressure too. But the importance of ensuring that we're targeting where the need is greatest, not the kind of thing that's proposed by the DUP, which was to cut everybody's rates bill, which overwhelmingly help, helps those of us who live in nicer houses rather than those who have the great social need. It has to be targeted properly if we're to make the most of what opportunities we have. Thanks, David. But just on that point, something I, I really wanted to talk about um, is, uh, and it was an issue that was flagged up in Baz's manifesto, which Carolyn is going to talk about in a bit more detail uh, in a few minutes. Kira mentioned earlier the expert panel, which advised the former Minister for Communities, Deidre Hargey, um, on the content of uh, what is to be her anti-poverty strategy. And there are a suite of recommendations there. They were very strong, but one of those was um, the suggestion that the Northern Ireland Executive audit the costs of poverty. Our manifesto ask was that the Northern Ireland Executive audit the costs of poverty, including the costs to the Northern Ireland Executive departments associated with addressing the impacts of poverty. We spend a huge amount of money uh, in Northern Ireland, also in GB, on addressing the impacts of poverty. And 
something that's not done, as I understand at North Ireland executive level, is having a look at what does addressing the impacts of poverty cost executive uh, department budgets. So looking at your old department, the Department for Justice, in terms of uh, antisocial behaviour, uh, criminal and youth justice as well, uh, looking at uh, Department for Health in terms of the impacts of adverse childhood experiences and long-term health complaints, looking at educational underachievement in relation to the Department for Education, you know, Oh, the, the example being looking at the costs of um, children being in, in the residential care system in Northern Ireland, which is astronomical and has a, has a, a huge human cost as well as a financial cost. Looking at the cost of poverty in the round and then being able to divert money in executive budgets to tackling poverty is an area that perhaps there's just a naivety on my part, but I don't understand why the executive doesn't take that forward um, thinking approach. It's something actually, I was at a, an icon event a number of months back, uh, which um, the health minister, Robin Swan, was speaking at, and he made this point. He talked about the health impacts associated with poverty. And in the breakout sessions, uh, after the health minister gave his, um, his keynote speech, I felt very much like the flag-waving social work representative uh, saying, poverty, impacts of poverty and none of the medical colleagues in that group wanted to talk about it. It was as if the minister had never said it. Sorry, I'm supposed to ask questions, not have um, uh, polemics. But that point being, David, from your experience as a minister, does the executive have the capacity to, to make those sort of collective decisions to look at how money is spent across departments? Well, I'll give you a trite, quick, you know, quick response to that point, which is that I always felt it was relatively easy to do a deal with another department sometimes with two other departments. Once you got to more than three, the internal you know, civil service politics, not the constitutional politics, tend to get in the way. Unlike our colleagues in Wales and Scotland, Northern Ireland effectively has the Whitehall silo mentality between departments, which makes that cooperation more difficult. But one example where I can say something positive is probably about 10 years ago now, an early intervention project in Belfast was being considered at the executive and the Department of Justice put a small amount of money into that because we saw the benefits of dealing with some of those very early years problems in a way which would make life better in the future for the justice system. But the blunt reality was that the money which was put in by the Department of Health and Social Services was almost going to repay itself immediately if, you know, if there was less pressure on health visitors and social workers and so on. The money which education put in was going to start repaying in two to three to four years when children went to school. And the money which justice was putting in was only going to benefit us in about 14 years' time when we hoped fewer of those children would get engaged with the justice system. But we still did it because it was the right thing to do, and possibly because I had officials who saw a big picture and because I was a social worker and saw that as well. There is a real difficulty in any department when your budget is under pressure looking to the long-term issues and the cross-cutting issues rather than dealing with that which is affecting your department immediately. But unless we can get a more joined-up mentality between different departments, and obviously on issues like the poverty strategy, there's several departments are affected. In fact, probably every department is affected in one way or another. Unless we can get that mentality, then we will continue to operate in separate silos without doing the, the collective work which starts to address these cross-cutting problems in a cross-cutting way. And the issue being the anti-poverty strategy is owned by the Department for Communities. Which so that's not my problem, it's theirs. Yeah. You know, we'll give a wee hand if we can help, but it's really their problem. Yes. But it's a department which has a very small budget compared to, for example, 
health and education as well. Yeah. And we've also got the issue, which, you know, maybe just um, we take for granted as well when we're discussing this, David, um, it's, a, it's a mandatory coalition. So different parties have different ministries. So it's not even a case of one party running the government and being able to discuss within its, yeah. you know, between its own members about allocating funds to help. I think that's what I'm finding so frustrated, frustrating about this 334 million that we know we have from Treasury, which is not an insignificant amount of money. And rather than, you know, getting together at some point and looking at how best that money can be spent, the parties made it their you know, the parties seem to want to think about how, what was the quickest way they could th- get that money out the door. You know, so they've, they've mm. decided to give every household in Northern Ireland, whether they need it or not, this one off payment, which seems to me possibly th- the worst way you could spend the money. And it's not getting to the heart of the problem at all. Was it a bit of electoral fodder? But what would make me very, very angry is if they decided to go ahead with that. So, for example, if Sinn Féin decided, right, we're just going to blast this money out as quickly as possible, rather than thinking about ways that they could really come up with a meaningful solution to the to, to, to the issue. You know, when budgets are so stretched, we have this chunk of money, let's do something really good with it. Let's look at the social security system. How could we improve it? How could we get sustainable money into people's pockets rather than just, you know, trying to get it out the door as quickly as possible? And I know that we are in an emergency situation, but I still think that we could do better. Thanks, Kira. Now, I just want to move on to talk about social work in Northern Ireland because it is different in terms of delivery structures compared to GB. Carolyn, we mentioned earlier on that uh, responsibility for social security policy is entirely devolved to the Northern Ireland Assembly. Responsibility for social work is also entirely devolved to the Assembly, but we differ from GB. Tell us a little bit about uh, how social work is structured in Northern Ireland. Uh, Okay, we have about 6,500, 6,700 social workers um, in Northern Ireland registered with NISC, uh, the Northern Ireland Social Care Council. And we know about two thirds, um, 67% of those social workers work in health and social care. Um, Now, that's quite a change, actually, to how things would have looked even 10 years ago when the split tended to be about uh, 80%, 20%. So we have many social workers who are employed um, outside of health and social care trusts. Uh, we obviously have probation, and David knows all about that. Uh, probation officers uh, in Northern Ireland, the only part of the UK where um, they're still required to be social workers. Uh, we have education welfare officers and youth justice, and a really vibrant uh, third sector. Uh, social workers really work from cradle to grave, so you'll find them employed in children's services, older people, mental health, learning disability, physical disability. That's within HSC trusts, Carolyn, isn't that right? So unlike GB, this isn't social workers being employed by local authorities? No, uh, and of course we have an integrated health and social care structure here. So all of those social workers are employed in health and social care trusts. Um, Well, they, they may actually be employed by voluntary sectors who are delivering services on behalf of the trusts, but uh, they're all involved in the uh, HSC. Yeah, that's about right. Andy. And does that mean it's the Department of Health that has overall responsibility for setting the strategic direction of social work? Yeah, uh, Department of Health has responsibility um, and that works through through Minister of Health. Um, and then we have the Office of Social Services. Um, at the minute, Sean Holland is our chief social worker and um, he has a team of professional officers who work 
uh, to him to deliver on that strategy. Um, the commissioning role, it has changed recently, uh, and I, I'm not 100% sure on how it's changed, other than uh, the Health and Social Care Board um, has now become the Strategic Planning and Performance Group, um, and they've moved to become uh, a separate entity, but within the Department of Health, and they've got a new post there, a new permanent uh, secretary post there. So I think they're still working out uh, actually how that how that's going to uh, develop and, and what the roles are going to be, but services are then commissioned uh, it would have been through the board before April and now they're commissioned directly from trusts and the third sector is what I understand at this stage, Andy. Okay. <laughs> but it all before, could change. <laughs> before before we get things far too excited by talking about commissioning structures. Indeed. Um, yes, uh, I just want to move on to talk about the other departments that have uh, social work responsibility. Now, David, you mentioned earlier on uh, in relation to your role as Minister for Justice, allocating funds for early, early years projects. I want to ask you about your background as a social worker and how that prepared you uh, for your role as a minister. I wasn't expecting you to actually share that little anecdote earlier on. That was a, an interesting insight. But any other ways that your social work background helped you prepare for political life and also uh, ministerial work? I suppose the, the key thing is my, you know, my role as a social worker gave me some understanding of, you know, of some of the issues, you know, whether it be poverty issues that Kira has talked about, or the other issues which social workers come across insofar as they impact on those who also come in touch with the justice system. I mean, there, there are huge issues in terms of rehabilitating those who've been in custody to ensure that they don't reoffend. Well, we actually have a very good record from professional social workers working for the probation service in Northern Ireland. That was one of the points which I, I found interesting. Some of the discussions which I had on cross-cutting issues with ministers of health during my time as minister of justice, um, I seem to sometimes find uh, social workers in the Department of Health looking across the table, smiling as I was saying something that their minister didn't necessarily agree with, which was an an interesting indication as to how sometimes you can es- establish you know, slightly different kind of coalitions. But it it really is the issue that I remember being asked when I became minister of justice whether I'd been a barrister or a solicitor. And I'm very happy to say, no, I was a social worker. And I felt that gave me just as valid insight into the work that was being done by the whole range of agencies across justice as it would have been to being a paid lawyer. Absolutely. And just, just out of curiosity, was that was that a genuine question you're being asked or was that an underhand question? Did they know that you were no, a social worker? No, that okay. was a genuine question from people who assumed that you would have had to be a lawyer in order to be Minister of Justice. Well, because you don't have to be a doctor to be Minister of Health or a social worker that to be Minister of Health or a teacher to be Minister of Education. The issue is how you get your grasp around the policies and how they apply. Can I just go back slightly at one, one point where, Andy, you mentioned the issue of the mandatory coalition, which we have yes, yes. in Stormont, where parties are entitled to hold ministries depending on their size, not on whether they can agree a programme for government. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to joke that I was the one minister in a voluntary coalition whilst everybody else was in a mandatory coalition. Because before I became Minister of Justice, which happened, so to speak, mid-term, it was for the last year of the Assembly's 2007 to 2011 term. And the key point for me was when the First Minister, Deputy First Minister, accepted the proposals that Alliance had put to be the programme for the Department of Justice. And then we said, fine, then we will give you a candidate to vote for, to install a minister. Because that was the way we thought things should happen. Mm-hmm. It's a much more efficient form of providing good governance. There are good reasons why we spread the 
the net as widely as possible for ministers and have done since Good Friday 1998. But there are also reasons why we need to ensure a measure of agreement to get good governance. And in fairness to both the DUP and Sinn Féin, they accepted and stuck to the points which they, you know, which we had put to them and agreed. Problems arose when other things came up that hadn't been thought of, <laughs> but they, but they were fundamentally prepared to accept that. And I think it's a measure of the way we should be moving in Northern Ireland to get a greater measure of agreement before we form executives, rather than trying to get it afterwards. Absolutely. Thanks, David. And just I've just come back. Just I wanted to come back to the point where you're talking about not needing to be a doctor or social worker to be the, to be the minister for health. We have actually under the last two assemblies benefited massively from having a social worker who was the chair of the health committee. And prior to um, that uh, that mandate, the the chair of the health committee um, had a social work background as well. It makes a massive difference to having issues understood because so often politicians. The the analogy I always use when I'm trying to explain lobbying, you know. Everybody goes to the, do- the doctors. Most people have been to hospital. Everyone goes to the dentist. Not everybody has had engagement with social work services. So it's having that understanding of what it is. And often when people have had engagement with social work services, they don't necessarily want to talk about it. So it's coming up with uh, explanations for what social workers actually do to, to improve the life opportunities of people. And it was fantastic that you had a ministerial department where you had then the opportunity to to make the most of your social work experience. The question I want to ask David now is, um, you know, God willing, we have a new assembly, sorry, we have a new executive uh, in the next number of weeks, months, who knows. Um, You know, government ministers, they have a high profile publicly, but I don't think people probably have a great understanding of the day-to-day aspects of their jobs. Uh, It's a bit of a mystery for people. Now, as we gear up to engage with ministers from the various departments in the weeks and months ahead, so that'll be health, justice, education, uh, communities. Can you tell me what it's like to take up a post in government, you know, with scores of different lobbyists and pressure groups vying for your attention? How do you set the agenda? How do you um, make a plan for the mandate ahead? Well, I said that I started off with the advantage of having put the, the draft for a programme for government for justice to the, the leaders of the executive before I took the job. That was a good start. Other people don't get that opportunity. It was then an issue of seeing that 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 message went into the department. And for example, seeing how civil servants responded. I think the the best arrangement between the key civil servants and the minister is a partnership. There's nothing worse than a minister who does what the civil servants tell him unquestioningly than possibly a minister who tells civil servants what to do without actually thinking what the issues are. And I was, I was very fortunate because at the point when justice was devolved, and remember that happened in 2010, after other departments were set up in 1999, I had people who came from the Northern Ireland office to work for the Department of Justice, to work for a devolved department, who were keen to make it a success and who wanted to get on with the business. In, you're in an issue which you might say is completely unrelated to social work, One of the first things that happened in my first summer was a proposal to extend one of the so-called peace walls in Belfast, the structures which are put up between uh, communities from different backgrounds because there's been a bit of trouble. Having campaigned against that as the leader of the largest cross-community party in Northern Ireland, including significant objections to the last one that had been put up by the NIO across the grounds or across the edge of the playground of an integrated primary school, an integrated primary school, I made it clear that we weren't going to put up any more walls. We did have to do a bit of patching of some of them, but we were not going to put up new walls. Once the civil servants who came with that proposal got the point that they had political cover 
to work in a different way, to seek to engage with local communities rather than just stick up a wall. They wholeheartedly put their efforts into doing good work. Um, in my time, we removed six structures. It wasn't much of the 60-something which were in Belfast, but it was at least a step in the right direction rather than a step in the wrong direction. Okay, that's not much to do with what we've been talking around social workers, but as an example of a minister... I, I, a I disagree, David. I mean... Yeah, so healing social division, working but, out yes, to, to yes, bridge divides that. across communities, that is that is fundamentally social work. It may be quite unique uh, to areas that are regions that have uh, political division and conflict. It may be more of an issue in Northern Ireland than, than elsewhere in the UK, but I would I would say that is yeah. fundamentally yeah. social work. Carolyn, you're nodding. I am indeed, yeah, absolutely. It's entirely social work. Yeah, it's what, we, what we're about. Well, and, and, it, and indeed so-called pen pushers were literally working on the streets in the evenings, talking to people about how to ameliorate those social divisions. But it was the fundamental point of saying, we are doing things differently and how do we do it? And getting social workers type civil servants who were going out to do that work on behalf of the minister because there was a vision to do something different and better. I think David just has touched on something really important there and about how pen pushes were going out and meeting those people that were affected. And honest- I did say so-called pen pushers. <laughs> <laughs> so-called pen pushers. Well, look, I think that would be amazing across the civil service because sometimes I think that civil servants, and I've worked with many senior civil servants in the last number of years, they don't get, you know, what life is like. And that's why the lived experiences of people who are living in those communities are so often missed. And, you know, we're trying to retrofit policies to them rather than have them inform the policies. So, you know, I think we need to see much more of that in in government um, where civil servants actually get um, out and about and, you know, really... Uh, be more invested in in the people that they're they're creating policies for. I mean, I just to interject there as well. Baswa, part of our role is to you know speak truth to power to hold departments, government ministers to account, civil servants to account for the decisions they make. But I think credit where it's due, Carolyn. I'll just mention Sean Sean Holland, the yeah, chief social absolutely. work officer in Northern Ireland. It was a number of years ago he produced uh, or his department, the Office of Social Services, produced. It was the UK's first anti poverty practice framework. And that's true. And I and I think we should give credit to the, the department. I mean, you were saying, Kira, about being involved in communities. And actually, I do think that our Office of Social Services are connected to communities. You know, they're, they're, they're social work practitioners. And I think that that really shows in terms of their understanding of the issues they're dealing with. It may not always work out in terms of working largely within the social within the civil service. But that's, a, you know, that's separate to the fact that they're social workers to their core. And I think that that shows in terms of what they what they try and bring forward and try and get through. Now, Carolyn, in terms of priorities over the coming mandate, back in January, we launched a manifesto for social work, which outlined five priorities, um, issues we wanted the parties to address uh, or commit to address um, ahead of the election. It'd be helpful just to cover some of those now um, so that our members and non-members who would be thinking of joining can see what Baz was actually doing on behalf of social work. Can you take us through, we don't have a huge amount of time, but um, skim us through those five. Okay. I mean, we have five, as you say, Andy. They are reducing bureaucracy and social work. No surprise that I'm talking about it. It's a key issue. It's a fundamental issue for social workers. We've been campaigning on it for 10 years, 10 long years, uh, and it's long overdue. So it really, really needs to, 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 take, uh, to take place. 
And that's about getting social workers doing social work, relational social work face-to-face with, with service users not spending 80% of the time Absolutely. doing Absolutely, that 80%. I mean, recent research that started off at 70%, 80% of time is spent doing paperwork and bureaucracy. And what we're saying is there's a lot of that's unnecessary. It's duplicative. Uh, and I'm sure, David, this chimes with your experience back in the day. Mm-hmm. It is the number one issue that uh, social workers want to see families and people who need their help and their support. They want to work with people. They want to make a difference. They don't want to be sitting in an office, filling out forms or sitting behind computer screens. And there's been a a lot of work has gone into over the years. Sadly, none of it has actually made any difference. Um, And I I think we've reached a crisis point, which which links us into our, our second point, which actually is we need to address the social work recruitment and retention pressures particularly within health and social care and within the health and social care system. Um, we're, we're at crisis point now within children's services. Um, vacancy levels in children's services are at 50%. 50% of children's services social work posts across Gateway are uh, are vacant. I mean, it's absolutely staggering. Um, and I, I challenge, you know, I, I genuinely do wonder, would any other professional group put up with that? Um, and I, we, we need solutions to be brought to the table now um, and lots of solutions in terms of the workforce review that was undertaken um, is looking at medium and long-term solutions uh, but we have a real need for short-term solutions something that's going to make a change now and it'll be interesting to see the work that Professor Ray Jones uh, in terms of leading the review um, into children's services is looking at. Um, Do you know and that links in Andy to our third point which actually is increased funding for social work services And it's as simple as it says in the tin, you know, social work cannot continue to provide good quality services without additional funding. And I know there's always pressures on systems and everyone's always asking for more money. But genuinely, to to keep children safe and to do the really important job that social workers do, um, that there's a need for for additional funding to be put in place. Just in terms of the the demand, I think we've had a 30% increase in the number of looked after children over the last decade. You know, that's massive. That's a huge amount of work. Resources need to be provided to manage that demand. They do indeed. And I mean, we hear all the time from social workers that genuinely they're they're working with scary caseloads. I mean, we don't have a caseload waiting system in place. Um, something that actually adequately says, as a social worker, you should have this amount of cases. Um, we know that across the UK, and I mean, it'll be interesting to... to to look at this across the UK, but we know that in the UK or across England, particularly in Wales, um, there is a set number of children that social workers see, uh, and that's set at about 14, uh, 15 children that social workers should be working with. So we know that in uh, in Northern Ireland, you know, this, it's counted differently. So social workers' caseloads are counted as a family rather than children. So, for example, you may be working with a family that has two or three children, uh, four or five children, they're counted as one unit rather than being counted as individual children. So it really it really adds up and it, it, it's time, it's really time for, for change and for review. If I could comment on Carolyn's point about budgets, I remember 20 years ago asking the then Minister of Health about the increasing amount of money which is going into acute hospital services rather than mental health or children's services. And there is a fundamental issue that because the Department of Health has never reformed those big spending acute hospital services, other aspects of health and social care continue to get squeezed. I'm proud that in the Department of Justice, faced with an issue of escalating costs in prison service, we commissioned one reform uh, report and we actually implemented it. We've saved significant money and we actually produced a better job. It's really unfortunate that acute hospital services haven't been dealt the same way and social work in particular has suffered. Thanks, David. I can barely remember what I did 20 minutes ago. So it's, <laughs> it's good to have that uh, cast in your mind back. Two decades. Um, 
Carolyn, we also made a, a priority of the need to deliver and implement an anti-poverty strategy. Now, I think we have covered that in terms yeah, of what Kieran discussed earlier. The last one, uh, statutory duty of candor, that's an interesting one. It is an interesting one, and it's one that sometimes people get a bit confused by. We did a lot of work on it uh, in, in the last year, and it's been really interesting, and discussions we've had with social workers have given us a very clear view that um, you know what, what we are proposing, we want to see the legislation come on board around a duty of candour at organisational level and a very clear sense that actually organisations should be held to account um, for, for when things go wrong. Uh, but that we oppose, strongly oppose the introduction of a statutory duty of candour um, at individual level. And I think there was a real sense from within the profession that to criminalise individuals rather than the systems which are often uh, the, the parts that are broken um, could actually have the opposite effect of what this bill hopes to achieve. So what we actually uh, are concerned about is that the um, the move to criminalise uh, professionals um, could actually prevent people from acting in a candid manner. Now that is a really fascinating uh, discussion we could potentially have. We have had it before, Carolyn. We've recorded we have, it. Andy. If you go back to, I was just checking there, uh, July 2021, the episode is called Can I Be Honest With You? Carolyn, myself, and um, the chair of the Basel Policy, Ethics, and Human Rights Committee, Martin Sexton, we talked for most of an hour about that. I would really encourage you to go back and listen to it. Whether or not you're um, a social worker practicing in Northern Ireland, the principles that we discuss are very, very relevant. Carolyn, thanks for running over those priorities so quickly. Um, when we're briefing ministers, David, in future on those priorities, we will take more time and we will spell out uh, the argument with an evidence base as well. But I just want to say thanks. Thanks, Kira, for sharing. Um, it's been fantastic to hear about your work. David, thank you so much for giving us an insight into your experience as a minister, but also looking back to um, your experience as a social worker. And Carolyn, thanks for being here. It's been great to speak with you all. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thanks very much.